Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're almost finished with our study in Isaiah. Um, and it's also Advent. And as I said last week, Advent is a Latin word that means arrival. And so these last 10 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 60 or 55 through 65, 56 through 66, these last 10 chapters of Isaiah are all about the waiting period and the arrivals of Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. If you go pick up a commentary and you read Isaiah, um, you'll get lots of different perspectives on this book. One of the perspectives being, and we mentioned this at the very, very beginning of the series, is that Isaiah was actually written by three different guys. It wasn't the same prophet who wrote all of it during his life. Um, the book is split up so that by the time you get to like 50, uh, um, on to like you know 55 or so, 56, uh, when he's talking about the season of Babylon, that was actually written by uh, uh, prophets during the season of Babylon who wrote under the pseudonym of Isaiah. And then 56 through 66, it was somebody who wrote under the pseudonym of Isaiah after they had returned back from exile. Uh, To that I say, baloney, I don't believe it. Uh, But you will find that if you pick up a commentary, a bad commentary, and you read um, uh, thoughts on how the structure of Isaiah was written. And one of the biggest critiques and why they structure this is because the tone is different, uh, the language seems different, and he seems very specific with the details that he's giving in the prophecy. Uh, To that I would say, well, God knows what's gonna happen and he tells his prophets and the prophet writes it down and that's kind of how it works. So for me, that's not an issue. The other thing that you'll find in the last 10 chapters, 56 through 66, you'll see this, uh, uh, it's described as recapitulation. All right, it's kind of where we get the word recap from. And the idea being that 56 up to about 60, that period of waiting and then the arrival of Jesus, is then repeated from like 62 on through 66, and then there's the other arrival. And the argument is that from where Isaiah is standing in history, when he's looking forward and he's seeing the the arrival of Jesus, he's seeing it all as one event. He sees Jesus showing up and then, bam, he institutes the new heaven and the new earth, and then when he shows up, he's making all wrong things right. And from where he's standing, he's looking and he's just saying, man, that's, that's what God is going to do. And so the first time he, 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 he uh, outlines the history uh, or the, the, the future tense of what Jesus is going to do when he shows up, and then he recites it again, and recapitulation is this biblical concept that I'm going to tell you the same thing, but standing from over here. Does that make sense? So some of the commentaries you'll pick up are uh, what he's saying is essentially the same thing. He's just saying it two different ways. And Isaiah does do that throughout his book, so it's not, um, it's not uncommon, and it's a, it's a valid reading uh, of the text. But I think it's important for us to read the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. Now, there are some guys that are like, oh, you don't do that. No, don't do that. Let the Old Testament just speak for itself. Uh, But that's not exactly what the New Testament writers did. When the New Testament writers, for example, when Matthew is writing, he's going back and he's pulling text from Isaiah, and we've seen a bunch of it as we've read through this. He's pulling text from Isaiah 4, and he's saying, ah, see how the prophet said this? This is how Jesus fulfilled it right? Um, you see this in other, some of the minor prophets too, when uh, Jesus and his family goes down into Egypt uh, and the, the, the prophet is quoted, um, I, I loved my son out of Egypt. I called him out, uh, or I loved my son Israel and I called him out of Egypt. And, the pro- and Ma- Matthew is saying, oh, that's a reference to Jesus. So the New Testament writers are looking back and they're saying, oh, now that we understand what Jesus did, because he was here and he lived with us for these three years and taught ministry. And then he rose from the dead and he, he walked along the Emmaus road and started with Moses and the prophets and explained everything to these guys. I would have really loved to be on that walk. But at the end of it, 
these New Testament writers are like, okay, we have, a, we have a better understanding of what these prophets saw just through a glass dimly. So I say all that because if you're to pick up a commentary on these last couple chapters of Isaiah, you may see a few references to a different way of looking at those things, and it's not to say that those are wrong, and it's not to say that the way we're looking at it is the only way to look at it. But when I read the last 10 chapters of Isaiah through the lens of what we understand in the New Testament, and I'm seeing a a description of a period of waiting, and then an arrival, and then another period of waiting, and then an arrival. To me, all I see is Advent. You follow? That's why we're reading it this way, but I don't want you to walk away thinking this is the only way to read it. Does that make sense? It's kind of just like a nice little disclaimer. This is important for us to understand that when the prophet is speaking these things, this is one lens to view the work of Jesus, but it is not the only way to view the extensive work of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, with that in mind, um, let's pick up where we were last week. We read, we read 56 through 59, and we covered that first period of waiting that we discussed. So these last 10 chapters, there's a period of waiting, there's an arrival, there's a period of waiting, and then there's another arrival. That's what's covered in these 10 chapters. We covered the first period of waiting, which is the 500 years before Jesus was born. And during that period, the message from the prophet to the people was a message of while you're waiting, there's work to be done. And some of the work that needs to be done is one, you need to be resting. Two, you need to be welcoming the outcasts because Gentiles are gonna be coming in and asking um, about God, because that was his ultimate plan for the entire world to come to saving faith. And you should also, in this period of waiting, be focused in on repentance. And we stopped last week at Isaiah 60, verse three, with the, the uh, announcement of the first arrival and the first advent of Jesus. And we saw Jesus' birth, and we're told that um, in verse, the end of two and verse three, that the kings of the nations are going to bring gifts to this savior. So we're gonna pick up in 60, I'm gonna read one again, uh, but before we do, I wanna take a quick deviation into Matthew, I wanna pull out just one small reference of what we were talking about earlier, about how the New Testament writers read uh, or write the New Testament in the light of the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter two, and let's go to verse one. I'm gonna read one and two and then skip down to 10 and 11 just to kind of summarize the, summarize the story. Matthew two, one through two, it says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east. That's important. Where did they come from? They came from the east. What's east of Israel? Babylon. Okay? Persia. East is where they came from exile. Wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now jump down to verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then, so they worshiped, and then they opened their treasures and they offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want you to remember those gifts as we turn back to Isaiah chapter 60 and let's pick up in verse one. It says, arise, I'm in Isaiah 61. It says, arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So in the timeline here, we are officially at the beginning of 60, now addressing that first arrival of Jesus. The first advent is taking place, and this is what we're reading about. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip and you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. 
This birth was a turning point in history for all of history, all the nations of the world looked poorly down on Israel, but because of the arrival of this servant, everything shifts. Nations are showing up with worship. Verse six, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. The servant is born in the manger, and the nations came and worshiped, and they brought gifts of gold and frankincense. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't know if that was a common baby gift back then. You know, like, and Joseph had another kid, well, I guess we bring him more gold and more frankincense. Diapers seem more helpful. This seems like a really, really specific gift. So where did this come from? And I think this is an, an important point for us to stop and meditate on for a minute, we should pause and ask a question. How did the nations know to come and worship? And how did they know to bring these specific gifts? For a moment, I want to just recap what has taken place in the history of Israel. Now, I'm gonna move around on the stage so you can get a sense of the timeline. Isaiah is standing here in 700 BC, and he's writing all of this. Even this right now. He wrote the stuff about Babylon, he wrote this stuff, and he's looking down in history and he can see what's coming. So in 700 BC, he's writing about the Babylonian captivity that will take place. He's also writing that there will be uh, freedom from that exile beyond that. People will return home. There'll be a 500, period, 500 year period of waiting. And then Jesus is gonna show up in his first arrival. And then there's gonna be another period of waiting and then he's gonna return again. He's writing all of this from this period in time of 700 BC. So he wrote this down. Now imagine we've got, I'm gonna use the Bible as the, the written text. So we've got Isaiah's writings, 700 BC, it's 600 BC. You're an Israelite and you're looking around and you're like, man, we're not making very good decisions. I just heard that uh, Manasseh, King Manasseh of Judah just murdered Isaiah by chopping him up. Things aren't good. We're turning back to idol worship. Now it's like five, five, like 90. Ooh, things aren't good. Babylon is, is really getting strong and they're coming and they're breathing down our neck. And there's this guy named Nebuchadnezzar and things don't look good. And all of a sudden, 586, Nebuchadnezzar is knocking on the door of Jerusalem saying, I'm here and I'm going to take you away into exile. All this period of time, we've got Isaiah's writings. The people of Israel go away to exile in Babylon, starting at 586, the temple is completely burned to the ground, destroyed. Now all of Israel, I'm, I'm Israel now, we're, we're in exile in Babylon and we've got Isaiah's writings. And then exile ends, because the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. And Cyrus says, go home and rebuild. And now we're home and we're rebuilding. And we've got Isaiah's writings. But guess who else had Isaiah's writings? Babylon and Persia. His writings traveled wherever the people went because this was God's word and Israel was good stewards of God's word. And now we're up here Jesus is born, and you've got the wise men who were listening to the stories of the prophets of God speak, and they were written down, and the wise men in, in the East could hear and learn about the word of God that was gonna take place. And then all of a sudden, and, and through this word, their promise are gonna be let go, and the wise men, you're never gonna let go. And all of a sudden, they watch Isaiah's words be fulfilled. What do you think that the world thought, Babylon, what do you think that the world thought about the, the, word, the prophet's words when they started watching them 
take place. They start thinking to themselves, well, maybe that's not the only thing that's gonna take place. So you fast forward to Jesus being born, and you've got some wise men from the East who've been listening for a long time about the prophet's words to this guy named Isaiah about the people of Israel, and you, through your astrological charts, you see this star that proclaims and connects through your worldly theology all of these things that Isaiah, Isaiah had spoke, and you go back into Isaiah's words, and you see that one of the things that you should respond to as his word coming true is that you need to go and worship this kid and bring gold and frankincense. Isn't that interesting? I find it fascinating because to me it speaks of how God used exile Israel to expose the world to his plan of redemption. And it informs why he's still calling his people to live in an exiled world. You ever wonder why we're still here? Maybe you haven't, I have. Like if glory is so good, can we just do it now? I'm saved, I know where I'm headed. Can we just head there now? Collectively, can we all just go there? The moment someone is saved, can we just get raptured to that moment? Can we just be in his presence? No, because there's work to be done because there are people here on this, this earth who don't know him, but he's calling their name. And he does it through the mouth of those who bring the message of good news and preach the gospel message. Why are we still here? Because there's work to be done in spreading the word. Because as people who live in exile, we have a responsibility to steward his word of what's coming so the world knows it because some of that world will turn and worship him. Are you following where I'm going with this? This is why we're here. It's not to make a good life for yourself. It's not to limit pain as much as possible. When you are adopted into the family of God, you are given his holy mission to continue the message of the gospel. To proclaim the fame of his name to a lost world so that when they start seeing that everything he said would come true has come true, so maybe the things that he says will come true will come true, which means that all nations of the world are under his judgment, and if I don't turn from this world to him, I will be destroyed. That's the message. That's what we're supposed to be filling our time with proclaiming that message. And we see precedent for that taking place in Babylon and the wise men from the east coming to worship. How did they know? Because God's word proclaimed it. How will they know today? Because God's word proclaims it. Now one important observation to consider as we move forward, and this is... Um, this is important for us to understand how the prophet is writing. We talked about this when we first started. Most of this prophecy is all poetic. And so <clears throat> there's symbolisms and there's connections that are, important, that are important for us to make. And one of the observations um, that we have to see and start making as we move forward is that Isaiah is clearly speaking of Jesus. The New Testament writers affirm this. When he talks about this servant being born, when he talks about the foreigners coming in and building up these walls, in Isaiah 61, as we'll read in just a second, when he walks into the temple and he reads the Isaiah scroll and he, he says, this has now been fulfilled in your presence, the prophet is talking about Jesus. But the prophet doesn't understand 
as clear as we do today. When he's looking forward, he sees a servant. He knows that God's plan is to redeem Israel. He knows that this servant will take on pain, but he doesn't quite understand how all this has worked out. And we've, we've talked about this. The reason why that this takes place and, and, and that it's clouded is so that the enemy doesn't know what the Lord is proclaiming. Because Paul says in Corinthians, if they had known that Jesus was going to do what he was going to do, they would have never crucified him. So part of the plan was concealed until the time that it was revealed. And now we're living on the other side of this and we understand it. And what I mean is, as we read, you will see Isaiah refer to you and your or Israel or Zion. As we read these in these last 10 chapters, I want you to read those as not the nation of Israel, but as Jesus being the fulfillment that I- of, of everything that Israel could not be. You follow? So when he proclaims Zion, they're gonna rejoice over you. What he's saying is the fulfillment of what Zion was supposed to be, but couldn't because of their sin, it was fulfilled in Jesus. And when the nations look at you, Zion, Jesus, they're gonna rejoice. When we talk about you, we talk about your, we talk about the city of Jerusalem, we're not talking about a literal city that God is going to bring his redemptive plan through. We're talking about Jesus as the epitome of that city as he builds a greater city and uses us to build up those blocks. The temple is no longer a location that you go to. Paul says that we are now the temples of God. The Spirit of God resides in us, not in some building. So now the nations don't come to a location. Now we, the worshiping temples of God, we go out into the world. You follow? This is how this imagery is unraveled, and it's important for us to understand that from this point forward, when the prophet sees God working his plan, he's doing it through Jesus, the greater Jerusalem. Follow? Let's go to verse 10 in chapter 60. What else is gonna take place when this Savior shows up and starts working God's plan? Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. Your gates be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, the the, the beauty, the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Excuse me, I misread that. To beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. What's the, what's the place of Jesus' feet? It's the world. When he ascended into heaven, he made the, heaven, he made the world his footstool. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despise you shall bow down to your feet and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Is God's plan for the whole world to bow down to a city? No. This is Jesus. The kingdom of God that was ushered in through Jesus is most understood like a city that never sleeps. What God is doing, what what Christ is doing through his work, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying is what I'm doing What I'm building is most like a city. You guys understand cities? You kind of get that concept and there's gates, there's things that are coming in. What I'm doing is like a city that has gates that never close. Anyone can come to the Lord if they cry out to his name. And guess who's going to build this kingdom, this city? Foreigners. Gentiles. People who have no descendant tie to Abraham, they're gonna be the ones building this up. 
And this building up is echoed in 1 Peter 2, 5 when we're talked about, and Peter says we're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. God is using us, those Gentiles, to build up this new kingdom. 1 Corinthians 3.16, you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you, Paul says. So this new thing that God is building is kind of like a city that's not located in one place and it's built up. The bricks and the walls are you and me and we're being built up and, and the gates, they never close. Everybody, anybody is welcome. And the descendants of God's enemies will repent and they will come join his efforts. And I think about how that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, when you've got all these nations from the round, around the world gathering and they hear the message proclaimed by Peter and 3,000 people get saved. Enemies of God for years come to saving faith. At this point in verse 15, Isaiah looks beyond this moment and he fixes his eyes just past that. And through 15 through 22, he sees this building of God's kingdom result in more worship and less war. He sees the result of God doing this work through Jesus as an end to all violence. And he sees the entire world being filled with worship. And he sees a point which where there is no more need for a sun or a moon because Jesus will be our light during the morning and the day. Now, has this taken place yet? No, but it will take place. This mirrors the language in the book of Revelation. And so what we're seeing is the prophet getting caught up in what he sees. He's looking and he, he sees Jesus' first advent and he sees what that means for all of the people of God as a whole. And he sees the end game and he, and he can't help but just see the whole world break out in worship. And for me, as I'm reading Isaiah's view of Advent and seeing that this is where his mind goes, I question how much more our minds should shift in this direction when we think about Advent. When we think about the first arrival and us celebrating Christmas, Jesus' first birth, most of the time we get our eyes fixed on that moment and we can't look beyond and we get focused in on the trees and the warm cookies and the fire in the fireplace and the good Christmas songs and not having to fight traffic in town because you ordered everything online and just how good this season can be. But that's it, that's where we stop. We don't accept the invitation that Isaiah gives us to lift our eyes beyond that. Look, just pass this season and imagine how good this season will be amplified and cranked up to 11 when he returns and it's like this not just in your home but over the entire world. When you walk into a department store, as woke as we are, there are still businesses singing songs about Jesus. That doesn't happen any other time of year. But that will take place, we're promised, over the entire world. There will not be a place that you can walk into in the new heavens and the new earth where there will not be songs sung of our king. People walking down the street whistling songs of Jesus. There will be no billboard top 100 without all 100 of the songs being worship songs to Jesus. There will be no more self-indulgence. There will be no more songs about depression or how bad my childhood was or how I have no hope now. And that's why I drink my sorrows away. All of that is gone and it's replaced with the praises of our King. And I think that if Isaiah goes there when he thinks of Advent, then we should also go there. Let's continue into 61, verse one. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Okay, now we've pivoted. We were watching the ministry of Jesus. He's now gone from being born and what that means to the entire world. And now we're in 61 where he walks in and he declares this scripture in uh, Luke 4, 16 through 21, that this scripture is being fulfilled. So now in, in what Isaiah is seeing, we're in the, we're in the ministry of Jesus. This is, this is in the middle of his three-year ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were in bound. He did all of those things while he walked this earth to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And he will build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. He did all of this when he ministered. And strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Oh, so he's not just coming for Israel. He's coming for foreigners too. And they're invited to come in and tend the flocks and join the family and get grafted in. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. And you shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory, you shall boast. And instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, there shall Rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion and they shall have everlasting joy. So Isaiah turns from his long view of the second advent into the first advent and he sees Jesus' ministry. And he sees that it's for Israel, but it's not just for Israel. And in 8 through 11, he starts speaking of what that covenant does what happens in the world when God's people start coming and waking up and realizing that it's time to tend God's flock and not your own. And the foreigners are joining Israel. What is the result? It breaks out in worship. And this is where the prophet goes at the end of 11 and into 62. Let's pick up the worship song in 62.1. It says, for Zion's sake, for Jesus's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jesus's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. What Christ is doing in this kingdom, I won't stop talking about it until it goes forth in brightness and burns like a torch. The nations are going to see this righteousness and all the kings of uh, all the kings your glor glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. Interesting. Now we're starting to deviate a little bit, and we're starting to look at what this work of Christ is doing in the nations when these foreigners are called in. You shall be called a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall be no more eternal, excuse me, you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. You shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. Now we're talking about God's people. Look at the imagery he introduces here. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So the work of God erupts into worship and we're seeing this new imagery of a new name and we're seeing the prophet use this imagery of marriage. Is this anywhere in the New Testament? Yes. Paul brings it in 2 Corinthians 11.2. The imagery of marriage in Revelation 19.7 and 21.9 connects the idea that Christ is like a bridegroom and his bride is being prepared for him, for him to return and accept her. And his bride is the church. Wow. Wow. We're here... So we're, guys, we're the foreigners. That's us. The prophet's looking out and he's, he's seeing you. And he's seeing what it's like for Jesus to call you from darkness into glorious light. And what that means to give you a new name and to speak of the church, to speak of you almost like a bride being prepared for her wedding day. 
Isaiah is seeing the Gentiles being adopted into the family and the birth of the church. This new kingdom that God is building includes Jews and Gentiles, both being built up to glorified God. Jew and Gentile are waiting together for his return. Go to six, it says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen. Okay, now we're starting to pivot. We've talked about this imagery of what it does, what, what his kingdom is building. And now we're looking at the people in this kingdom. So now we've moved just beyond the, the first arrival. We've seen what it's done. We've seen what it's building. And now we're in that second waiting period. The prophet, starting in verse six, is addressing the people who were in this second waiting period, referred to as the church, who follow the first arrival and waiting for the second. What should these people in this period of waiting fill their time with? O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So the prophet's using common imagery for these people and he's using watchmen on the wall. Because in this time you've got a city and it's surrounded by a wall and how do you know if the enemy is coming to take you out in the middle of the night? You put watchmen on the wall. You've got guys who are standing there and their only job is to stand on the wall and to watch all night long. We're watching for signs of victory. Somebody's coming to proclaim good victory. We're watching for signs of the enemy trying to sneak in at the night. We're watchmen on the wall. That's the imagery that we're given from the prophet. And so waiting people in this period look more like watchmen on the wall than sleeping Christians. During this waiting for the second of Advent, the Bible tells us that we are people who are supposed to be actively identifying threats, but also proclaiming truth. We're standing on the wall watching for compromises in the family. We're standing on the wall waiting, watching for his arrival like the sun rises in the morning. But we're also proclaiming that's dangerous. Church, don't give yourself to that. Somebody's coming to the gates to sell you on consumerism. Don't buy it, church. Someone's here to sell you a false gospel. Don't buy it. Crying out loudly. Spend no money with this guy. But it's not the only thing. Verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way of the people. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal for the people. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And he shall be called, the, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. What's the other thing that the waiting people are doing besides standing on the wall as watchmen? They're out actively building roads to connect his kingdom with this lost world. They're out inviting folks over for dinner, people who don't want anything to do with God, neighbors who don't believe that Jesus is a real man who rose from the dead, sharing meals with them and proclaiming the goodness of God by them watching the love that exists in your home, but that requires that love actually exists in your home. I'm convinced that one of the strongest evangelistic tools that we have in the culture we live in right here in America is hospitality. There was a time when the most important thing you could do was, do you have a moment to talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? There was a time when it was important to go out because there were people that didn't want, they weren't leaving their homes, they didn't want anything. But, but look, I, you, you can hold your own personal opinion, but doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work much anymore. Most people aren't answering. 
Most people aren't, aren't interested. But you know what they are interested in? Watching how your faith informs your life. Watching how your faith shuts your mouth. Watching how your faith orders your finances. Watching how your faith changes your desires. That's what this world's interested in. How does this transform us so that we live differently? And they can't see it unless you're inviting them over. And so we're looking at people in waiting, building roads to get to non-believers. This is evangelism. Now 63, one through six introduces, it's, it's kind of a break from his vision and he sees the Lord appear in these crimson garments and he's essentially soaked in a bloody robe because he's punishing the nations. And you'll get lots of different thoughts from different commentators on what this means. I think what this means is that in the midst of all of this, of us building these roads, of us standing on wall proclaiming, in the midst of us in this waiting period, establishing his kingdom and spreading it through the preaching of the gospel message. In the middle of all that, the, I, I think that the Lord is communicating to the prophet that he's not silent during this time. He hasn't appeared yet to judge the nations, but he also won't just stand back and let the nations have their way. His robe is soaked in 2,000 years of blood because nations rise up and slaughter his creation and he won't stand for it. Where is Nazi Germany today? I believe the Lord put an end to that. There are madmen fueled by darkness and demonic activity that love nothing more than just robbing God's people and robbing mankind of their dignity. And I don't believe that God has turned a blind eye to it. God knows the name of every girl who's caught in slavery. And he has not forgotten them. And if his robe isn't soaked in blood, bringing vengeance on her behalf right now, it's coming. Don't make alliances with that nonsense because you're gonna feel the wrath of his sword. In verse seven, we continue with this idea of what the people in the meantime are filled with. Verse seven, I will recount, this is 63, seven, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. What are waiting people doing? They're filling their time with studying God's ways and his people's ways. This is what we're doing right now. What are we doing in the meantime? We're going back to Isaiah to read about how faithful God was to Israel when they were so unfaithful to him. So we can be informed on how faithful he is to his church today when we are often unfaithful to him. We spend our time in this word studying, God, what have you been up to? What are you doing? How can that inform how we look at what you're doing today? That's what we spend our time with. And then in verse 15, he introduces a prayer that continues on into 64, and that's where I wanna read, and that's where we'll finish studying today, 64, one. This is a prayer, as a prayer of the waiting people. It says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble in your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. And from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those 
who wait for him. You meet him joyfully. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And in our sins, we have long, we have been a long time and shall we be saved. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, they take us away. Do you see where he's going? Do you see where his prayer is taken? It starts with a proclamation. Oh, God, you're so marvelous. Come down and show your strength in the world we live in. It's so dark and you're so bright. Come repair this world. And then you realize in your prayers that you're counted among the unrighteous, that on your best day, you don't add up. And it takes a turn towards repentance. Verse seven, there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take a hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. And we're the clay, you're the potter. We are all the work of your hands. In the prayer, there's this move from confession to repentance to realization, like who we really are. Who, who are we to tell you how to do things? Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness, and Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem, desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. I can imagine Isaiah looking out into 70 AD and seeing the burning of the temple when he's writing this. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? So this is a prayer, it was the end of 63 and all of 64. It includes repentance, intercession, prayers for home, prayers for cities, prayer for your church, prayer for the Lord to return, to judge this world for their sins. What's this telling us? It's telling us that one of the primary things that awaiting people do, beyond standing on the wall, beyond building these bridges, beyond studying the faithfulness of our God, is we fill our time with prayer. We're a praying people. God, fill your church once again. Holy Spirit, fill the sails of your church once again. We're looking around the world and we're seeing your name being mocked and burned and ruined and, and some of it is because of us. We've been bad stewards of your word. But some of it is because this world is mounting active campaigns against you. But whatever the reason for the mocking, God, Show yourself, roll up your sleeve one more time and put these mocking, rebellious nations who are fueled by darkness and demonic power, bring them to their knees on the off chance they might be saved, but if not, put them in their place. Do not let this world mock you. That's what waiting people fill their time with, prayer. So today we covered two more periods. Last week was the waiting period, this week was the arrival, and then the next waiting period, and next week we'll close out this study with the final advent, the second arrival of Jesus. And it's gonna be glorious. We're gonna look at what the prophets saw of what's coming our way when he arrives. But the point I wanted to make this morning in studying these chapters is that waiting people have always had lots of work to do. Waiting people don't sit around and twiddle their thumbs. The period of waiting leading up to the first advent was not managed well and it created corruption and idolatry and sin. And when Jesus finally showed up to his people, they missed their visitation. And God in his mercy has given us another period of waiting so that his church filled with Jew and Gentile, foreigners and his long lost descendants of Abraham, 
all of us worshiping him together can, we're given a period of waiting again so that we can prepare for this second return and we're not getting another shot. There won't be a third return. This is it. We spend our time proclaiming the good news of Jesus, building those roads to our neighbors who don't love God, but he loves them. We spend our time studying his word and becoming familiar with his ways so we can speak eloquently about his ways and not, well, I think maybe, I'm not really sure, I don't know. No, we speak as subject matter experts because we know our Father and we know the way he does things. And he loves you and he wants you. So repent and turn. That's what we're filling our time with while we're on our knees and praying, Lord, save this world and bring the unrighteous to their knees. This is what Advent is all about. The world wants you to make Advent about spending $100 on a Christmas tree and decorating that thing and then when it's done, throwing it out in the yard, not thinking about it again. Putting more money than spending, racking up your entire credit card on buying gifts for people that they don't really need. But this time is just about vacation and being around the people that you like and not around the people you don't like. That is the lowest possible bar for celebrating the first arrival and preparing for the second arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ that I could possibly imagine, but it is only one representation of how often we let this world tell us how we worship our God. And I, for one, have had enough of it. I'm not interested in what the world thinks about my God or how they think I should worship him. I've been informed by this word on how I'm supposed to worship him and I'll follow this rather than the commentary of some influencer on the internet. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. This is the greatest time of year because it is celebration that he showed up again and it is preparation that he is coming again. So spend your time getting ready. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.